About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Irene Ying, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jory Sekaracha, and I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. For years, we have worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. Anat Barron is a Los Angeles-based tech founder and professional speaker. She's had an eclectic career as an executive and entrepreneur in hospitality, Hollywood, and the beer industry, even though she is allergic to alcohol. She received her BA from the University of British Columbia and master's degree from Cornell University. You can read all about her at anatbarron.com. Anat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. You have built a career on innovation and embracing the future. And I noticed that you previously stated your love for the Jetsons, that animated sitcom, and that you commented on how that show managed to accurately predict so many future technologies, including telemedicine. Now, you have had firsthand experience with telemedicine in the context of your mother's care and managing her care from afar. Can you tell us a bit about your mom and how you've been supporting her? Sure. So my mom was diagnosed in about uh, two years ago, in October of 2020, about six months into a global pandemic. So just imagine not only getting a diagnosis that your mother has stage four metastatic breast cancer, but also that the country of Canada is closed and that you cannot be there. There were so many things that happened, I think, during the pandemic that were horrible and negative and so many people died. And that's a completely separate conversation. But for me and for my mom and for her care team, we had to figure out how to manage a brand new situation with the shock and horror of it from afar, because not only was there a pandemic, I also thought about last night as I was getting ready for this conversation, even if I had been in Toronto, I still would not have been there to hold her hand. But being thousands of miles away meant that we had to do it in a completely different way. And the Jetsons, which is still my favorite show, which I can go on about for hours. But in the Jetsons, what was interesting was everything that they did. And they predicted, for example, flat screen televisions, right? And that's how they talked to the doctors. So we had something, thank God, that we would not have had 20 years earlier when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer, which is the ability to talk to her and her care team via technology. And really, it was FaceTime that saved us. She had an iPhone. And I had to convince her doctors to actually do something that they were very uncomfortable with, which is allow technology into the room. And then I had to convince them to communicate with me using technology and using things like email, which have been, again, against every single rule because of privacy. So we literally had to start from scratch and figure out how to do this. And we did. I think in medicine, we are notoriously behind the ball when it comes to technology. You know, we're still using fax machines and pagers. But can you tell us a little bit about what you had to do to convince the doctors to get on board with this move to virtual care? So... When my mom got diagnosed, it was quite shocking for a variety of reasons. 
mostly because after five years of having breast cancer, years later, I had breast cancer. And literally two months before the pandemic, my mom and I went to Maui to celebrate the fact that we were cancer free. So this was mm -hmm. a really crazy thing. So when it happened, it was so shocking. No one ever talked to us about metastatic breast cancer. We didn't really know what it was. And so once she got diagnosed, she had two doctors at the time. She had a family doctor and her oncologist came back into the picture who had been her original oncologist. And so I had to use that technology. Let's call it that. I'm not sure a fax machine is still considered technology, mm -hmm. but I, I sat down and wrote separate letters to each of her doctors and then had to, in the middle of the pandemic, find a fax machine because I no longer have one. So I had to find a FedEx office that was open. And I faxed these letters to her doctors only to realize that they weren't near a fax machine either. So someone had to read the letters to the doctors. Oh I mean, goodness. it really started like that. Hmm. And then what I had to do as her care team got bigger was start having conversations and explain the situation. And by the way, technology only works if you're above ground. So for example, when she had radiation at Sunnybrook in the basement, and I was trying to talk to her doctor, there was no reception. And so I had to call the switchboard and beg someone to run to the doctor and for them to call me on the landline. You know, we depend on technology a lot, but there are obviously a lot of limitations. And so it wasn't just convincing the doctors. It was also making sure that my mom felt supported by me having to manage whatever it was in order to always be by her side. It's interesting that segues really nicely into our next question. And that was going to be, you know, what did you see as the limitations? I think you've already touched on the limitations, the idea that you had to go through so many workarounds in terms of the fax machine and people reading out letters. It'd be interesting to hear from you. What other limitations did you see with virtual care? And also to touch on the other side of that coin, the opportunities and advantages of virtual care. So I, I think that you know, we were very lucky, like I said before, that the technology was there at the moment in time. I think about that in general, about this pandemic. Had the pandemic happened any other time, 20 years earlier, I don't know how business would have survived. I don't know how healthcare would have survived. There were a lot of challenges. And frankly, the doctors didn't necessarily love having a phone in the room. And there was another challenge, which we didn't really talk about, which is everybody was masked, mm -hmm. sometimes double masked with shields half the time i had no idea what they were saying my mom has hearing problems and so she couldn't hear them so i was in the middle trying to translate literally i was three thousand plus miles away trying to say out loud what i thought the doctor was saying so there were so many layers to this thing not just the doctors right i mean healthcare spans the pharmacy the home care the variety of the treatments getting tests, you know, having to get on the phone and try to schedule tests, getting my mom to appointments. I mean, we don't really think about all of the different steps that need to be taken by someone who is caring for a patient, right? Especially in the middle, let's repeat it again, of a global pandemic, right? It just added so many extra steps because otherwise maybe I could have had someone drive her. So there were just so many layers to it. The thing that did help on the other side of it was that there was a pandemic. And so everyone kind of rallied, if you will, and understood what was going on. I was able to create this 
kind of plan for my mom, if you will, and this system of virtual care because of my background too. I don't know that everyone could have done it. And I don't want anybody listening to this to think that they are less than. I just think my mom got lucky that I have a combination of experiences to let me do it. I think virtual care, though, going forward has tremendous advantages, right? Like even now, the pandemic isn't there. I go back and forth to Toronto as often as I can, but I can't be there for every appointment. But because I have a relationship with my mom's care team, I have been able to be a constant and a part of it. And so my mom feels taken care of because she has someone by her side, whether it's physically or virtually. And then there's a continuity with whomever is on the other side, whether again, it's the doctor or the nurse, whoever it is. I mean, I know everybody, I've gotten to meet them virtually and I got to meet them personally. And I think like having someone there virtually too and being part of the process helps everyone else because the onus and and the burden almost falls to the person who's coordinating it all. And, you know, for everyone, they feel like there isn't much that's going to fall through the cracks. And that's really important, I think, especially when you're dealing with palliative care, when the patient is sometimes doing great and sometimes is barely able to explain how they're feeling because they're feeling so crappy. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And it answers it in such a thorough way, exploring the things that went well and, and the advantages that you had based on your experience and those challenges. It makes me think back to those early days in the pandemic. We're still wearing masks, but it makes me think back to how we were all rushing around to try and figure it out and to figure it out from day to day and, and week to week. So it brings me back to that time. Annette, I was also going to ask, was there like a significant moment or a special moment that virtual care allowed for something that wouldn't have otherwise been possible? There were so many moments. What's interesting is this is supposed to have been a once in a lifetime pandemic, right? I think as I think to the future, I'm reminded by what worked, but then what was really important during the pandemic I don't know how to translate that right into the future when we're not wearing masks. I mean, hopefully a year from now, we will not be wearing masks and life will be more normal and we can take the best of. So what I found and was surprising to try to answer your question and memorable was those moments, let's call them moments of truth, when people really rallied, when Mm. my mom needed help and somebody was there. We got that from her palliative care doctor was amazing. And she constantly, for example, kept me in the loop as well. So she let me know what was going on on the side and sometimes without my mom so that I could be helpful and my mom and I could take better care of her. There were so many people who helped. And the other thing that I tried to do because it was such a crazy time was continue to show appreciation in the smallest possible way. My mother went into the hospital, I think in November of 2020, when COVID was raging. And I knew because I couldn't get a hold of anyone that the staff was overworked and overstretched. My mom did not have COVID. She just had a complication. And so one night I sent everyone pizza. Doing the small things, and this isn't about throwing money. This is not about privilege or anything else. This is just about acknowledging even though you're not actually meeting people virtually, that you understand what they're going through and show appreciation. And I think that where people make a mistake, if I can add to that, 
with caregiving, whether it's virtual or not, it's when they go from being an advocate to being a pain in the ass. Can I say ass? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) You know, you have to find that balance of pushing for great care for the patient, let's call them that, whether it's your family member or a family friend, and then knowing when to back off and to be grateful when you're seeing that either the system or the person is just overburdened. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do. So being able to judge that, obviously, as a caregiver, my number one job, if you will, is to make sure that my mother gets the best possible care. And believe me, you don't want to get in my way, but I will be super nice about it because I also understand what it's like on the other side. And I had to stop and learn about, and I'm taking this from the title of your podcast, but try to be a little more or a lot more empathetic, both for my mom and for every single person, because there were so many people involved and continue to be involved in taking care of her. And so it becomes a two-way street and healthcare. I think for the longest time, and probably still is very transactional. You have a problem, you go to the doctor, you're looking for a solution. Not so much the same in palliative care, right? Because there isn't always a solution. It's really a process. So what you try to do and what I try to do is make it less transactional, even virtually, and create relationships with people, right? And so I think that we all can take a lesson from what we learned, you know, during those two really difficult years and become a little more understanding of what it's like on the other side. You mentioned the relationship in her palliative care physician and them trying to do so well, but these were all new times. As a palliative care doctor, I think Irene and Giovanna and I, you know, we we want so much that bond, that patient-doctor relationship, and we want that relationship with family. How did you find that compassionate connection impacted by virtual care? Was it still possible? And if it was possible, how was it different from your past experience when you were going through cancer and how the connection was made then? This was my first experience with palliative care. First, my mom and I first heard the term palliative care, and it was her family physician who brought it up. My mom completely freaked out because I think that there is a complete misunderstanding Mm -hmm. and people think that you go into palliative care because the next step is, you know, going into some sort of hospice and then you're dead in a week. And so we had to understand what that meant. I think it's the biggest blessing that we've had, to be honest, because whether virtual or not, what was important is that we understood that that it was not only about the patient, but about the family, like you said. So we Mm -hmm. didn't know that there was anybody who cared about that. And secondarily, it was someone who was interested in the whole being. I find that in medicine, we are basically parts of our bodies. And we have different doctors who take care of, you know, whatever part it is, but nobody really looks at you in a holistic way. The palliative care doctor really became the central figure in dealing with every single part of my mom's life, whether it was medical, home care, having a nurse come, physical therapy, whatever it was, it was taking the different components and looking at her as a person and then looking at her within the family construct. And we did that to answer your question directly, virtually, because I 
showed up to every single meeting that my mom had with her palliative care doctor. I got to know her again, relationship. It wasn't a one-way street. I also recognized that it was super crazy and busy in the hospital. I tried to be as clear and concise with what was needed. And I also did something that I think a lot of people make a mistake with doctors in general is, oh, I have a, I have a sore throat. Oh my God, I have to go to the ER. You know, not everything is an emergency. So I would talk to my mom and figure out when it was critical to contact the doctor. And I was able to do it luckily virtually via email, for example. We all have to take part in this, right? There's the doctor, there's the patient, yeah. there's the caregiver. And we can't just pass everything on to a third party and assume that they're taking care of it. It's just not fair. And the system isn't built for it. It's the same thing as I would have done, I think, you know, IRL in real life, which is not look at it as a transaction, realize that this doctor is going to be with my mom for the rest of her life, however long, and hopefully it's long that is going to be. And that we had to develop an understanding between each other about what was urgent and what wasn't, ultimately making sure that my mom's care was paramount. I love how you emphasize the fact that we need to ensure that our relationships are relationships. They're not transactional. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to necessarily build a relationship. I think a lot of people sometimes are worried about the time, the effort that needs to be spent, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic and time is always of the essence. It's been so helpful to get all these insights from you and that. We usually like to end with the statement, if only they knew. And what I mean by that is, you know, for our listeners, whether they be in the general public or people who are aspiring physicians, nurses, other healthcare professionals, based on your experiences, is there anything that we haven't really touched upon that you wished that they knew that would help them provide better compassionate care, especially in the virtual care platform? I think that doctors in particular are so focused on the medical situation, which is their job and what they should be doing, that quite often the humanity falls to the side. So often when you are delivering bad news, I understand that you have to deliver that news, but the more you can think about how that impacts the patient in the moment, family and their life. And so if the medical professional, whomever that is, can really think about what it's like to, to get that diagnosis. They don't have to be a psychiatrist in the moment or hold your hand necessarily, but just having that understanding that this is life-changing and maybe allowing a moment for the other person on the other side to take a breath. I think that that would be like the biggest advice that I can give someone on the other side. And that's not, by the way, to diminish from the difficulty of having to deliver that diagnosis, which I'm sure is horrific, or having to work with patients whose you know diagnosis isn't so great and there isn't that much to look forward to. But if I can end with something that I talk about in my speeches, which is we are moving into a world, to go back to the Jetsons where we started, where there's going to be more and more technology. And as we have more and more technology, including in healthcare, include, you know, I, I mean, telemedicine is going to be huge, but they're going to be sensors. I mean, they're going to be so many ways in the home. And so doctors will actually become more important, I think, 
because they're going to translate the technology for us, what it all means, but they're also going to be, because technology can't do it, the human contact and provide that human element. And I promise you that in 10 years, having this conversation, trying to add humanity to everything that we do is really what is going to keep us as humans from turning into robots. You know, you talked about giving that time and space, right, for the patient, for the caregiver, acknowledging that this for them is a life altering sort of piece of information, whereas for the physician, it's probably just like another diagnosis in their day. You know, being on virtual care, being over the phone sometimes, not even having that visual, but talking on the phone, you can't even read those nonverbal cues anymore. How did you find that that impacted the way that the physicians or other healthcare professionals provided care? Were they more aware of the necessity of providing this time and space? Or do you find that it created this kind of awkward dynamic where you're just trying to, you know, stumble through and and not providing that space for empathy? When I got my personal breast cancer diagnosis, it was over the phone. It was from a doctor that I had known for many years. So he was able to provide that empathy. You know, he was like, do you want the good news or the bad news? And we did it in a lovely way, as lovely as it could be to hear something like that. When I came to my mom, she got the diagnosis on the phone. And I heard it on the phone because I was on the phone with her doctor. And so I think that her doctor wasn't terribly experienced also with metastatic breast cancer, it's not something that most family doctors know a lot about. And so it was very difficult. And I think that there has to be a fine line between the transactional part of this and the relationship part of it. I get that for doctors, you're right, it's just another diagnosis. And so they have a list of phone calls that they have to make. And they're making the calls and saying your results came back. And here's what it is. And they're just doing that all day long. And that must be terribly difficult. But I believe that there is a way, whether it's in your voice, there is a way to just stop for a second and say something like, I know this must be really hard to hear. Take a day to digest it. I'm here for you. I mean, anything that you can do in the moment so that you feel less alone. I think the hardest part of getting any sort of diagnosis of any illness is the moment when first told to you, because that is something that will stay with you. That is the thing that you remember. It is always, always, always in your ear. And how it was delivered, by whom, and what it felt like, if it is on the phone, when you hung up the phone, is really important. And again, this always go back to, if you can, and I know it's hard, and it was definitely hard during the pandemic, to find that little bit of humanity and to do what we all say that we should do, right? Put yourself in the other person's shoes. So Annette, do you have any advice for patients or for their loved ones in terms of how to optimize virtual care? So I think the best answer I could give to how to optimize virtual care is that it would be helpful, especially when you're dealing with older patients, to not assume that they can navigate the technology around virtual care. I would say that the biggest obstacle that I've had having virtual care and trying to be there with my mom 
is that I did not have issues, for example, getting on whatever platform it was, because every hospital, every doctor uses a different platform. But my mom had a really difficult time. Half the time I was on the virtual platform, I would have my mom on FaceTime on my phone, she would be talking to my computer, which is a really ridiculous way in 2022, or whenever you listen to this podcast, to deal with virtual care. So the technology is way too complicated, especially for, I think, older patients. And again, not to age anyone or not to shame them. I think that making it super simple, my job as a caregiver should not be doing tech support and trying to teach my mom how to use so many different platforms. I would say, if I'm counting in my head, there were probably at least seven or eight Everybody uses a completely different system. And that makes it really, really difficult. That's a great point. And I think what you're speaking to is accessibility overall. So accessibility in terms of the technology, challenges to accessibility because of language, because of maybe not having access to the different platforms, not having access to a device. 100%. I think you hit the nail on the head there with the accessibility issues. So although virtual care made things more accessible for some, it diminished access for others. So I don't know if Irene or Dory had any other questions. I just want to say that I also love the Jetsons. (laughs) And I think if George Jetson could have, if he could have done all that technology, there is hope for our future. (laughs) Maybe it will be accessible to all. (laughs) Annette, thank you so much today for sharing your wisdom with us. It's really been a pleasure. I wish you and your mom the very best. And hopefully we can be in touch next time you're in Toronto. Thank you so much again for having me. It was just a great conversation. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Golda Fine Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. Anat brought up so many good points in our conversation around virtual care you know, the drawbacks, the advantages of it. And and one of the things that really stood out for me was how she really emphasized as we move more into virtual care, moving away from the idea that everything in medicine is transactional. Because I think oftentimes as physicians, as healthcare providers, we kind of fall into that trap when really providing compassionate, good medicine is about developing those relationships. And there's so much about virtual care. I know we're scared of it, especially in medicine, since we're in the dark ages of technology, but there's so much of it that can actually enhance those connections. And, you know, listening to her speak made me think about how we shouldn't be fearing technology. We need to embrace it, but we also need to, you know, understand the limitations of it. What were your thoughts? I think for me, when I think about my patients and how they've benefited from virtual care. And just to preface, like for me, it's primarily phone conversations because I haven't had that much luck, to be honest, with video calls just because of the kind of the barriers around the, the technology. So for, for my patients, in terms of the benefits, there's so many good things that came out of virtual care. 
it made them easier to access me as their physician. They didn't have to drive for an hour and pay $30 for parking to see me, that we could have a a conversation uh, when it was convenient for them and not have that impact half their day. So many advantages in that regard. But I have to say, when I got to meet people initially by phone and not in person, I did feel not as connected to those patients, that Mm. I didn't have as much of a sense of who they were. And so I think to your point, I think we really, I think with especially a phone conversation, you really have to go over and above to make sure that you really get to know that person, especially when you're doing palliative care. Otherwise, I felt very disconnected. I don't don't know if you had that experience story because you would have virtual visit with your patients too. I was actually shocked at how well virtual visits mm. went. I was really worried because I only talked to patients. I mean, to me, I was like, oh, but if they want to talk on the phone, I'm not going to see their eyes. I'm not going to get those little nuances. But I was surprised at how well it went. But I agree with you, Giovanna, because it was the people I knew the best on the phone where I felt it, it worked the best. I offered everybody either or, and almost nobody wanted video. Mm. Almost nobody wanted video. When it was a new patient, I tried really hard to say, can we have one video so that, you know, we get to see each other and you can connect a, a face to a voice. And that often went well. And then they would want to immediately switch to phone. But I thought I would feel very disconnected to my patients. But I was very happily surprised by when you're on the phone, you're, you cannot be distracted. I would sit there and often close my eyes so that I wouldn't be looking around because I, I'm not looking at the patient and I could easily wander. It's easier to wander when you're on the phone than even on video. So I think that you worked hard at maintaining the connection But, you know, and the phone isn't the newest technology, but I was so pleased that I could stay in contact with patients because they couldn't come to the hospital. And most of them really appreciated just the flexibility because, you know, I was like, well, sure, you want five o'clock instead of usually my last appointment is four. That's fine. I'm, I'm at home. They're at home. And I would do something from four to five and then talk to them from five to six. So you know, it was really nice to have that flexibility. So I saw that as a bonus. I think it was because it was so surprising is why I was so pleased because I was so worried when it first happened that I wouldn't have that that uh, connection. And it, it brings it back to communication again. And I think no matter what technology you're using, if you're not using technology You have to listen to your patients and you have to somehow get across that you care about them and that you hear them. Maybe you can't fix what's going on, but you're there for them. And if you can do that, then I think we can make that work with any technology that comes our way. It's a learning curve. Yeah, I mean, I think there's strategies that we use in person in communication skills strategies that you can obviously still use on the phone. You you miss sort of the the nonverbal communication. You you miss out on their cues and they mm-hmm. also miss out on your nonverbal yes. cues that you're really listening and, and paying attention. And so I think we have to use those strategies that we use in person when, you know, allowing for silence, you know, paraphrasing 
their yep. answers. I think we have to use those strategies and I think be very deliberate about it in the virtual environment and to not make it a conversation that's like a checklist type of that's conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Dory, can I ask you for your patients? Yeah. When they preferred the phone conversation, do you think it was a technology hurdle as we kind of talked a little bit about with Anat? Or do you think it was that the, you know, the visual piece made the patients feel more vulnerable? I think in my particular case, which wouldn't be the same for everybody, that they just like the thought that they could be get up in the morning and not even worry about brushing their hair. They could have their pajamas on. They didn't have to present in a certain way because they would say, this is so Mm. relaxing. Like when you're on the phone, you have Mm. no idea what somebody's wearing. You know, (laughs) did they brush their hair? So I think that was part of it. For some of my patients, it was for sure the technology. They had had some bad experience with OTN. They had had some bad experiences with Zoom. They got cut off in the middle. On the phone, they felt, I'm going to talk to you from 10 to 10.50. I doubt the phone is not going to work. So they liked that security. So I would say it was a little bit of one was convenience and not having to present a certain way. And another was... There's no risk involved in in the phone. And I was surprised, like on the phone, I think I picked up on hearing things more because I can't see their eyes. So I would hear a little change (laughs) or I think something that I would, I couldn't imagine their eyes at that moment. Because when you're in the office, you're trying to integrate all the cues, right? Your visual and what you're hearing. And on the phone, you're focusing on one cue. So I think it was better than I thought. You know, I was in track pants and a sweatshirt and I would never go to work that way. Or if I was on video, I would at least have a nice top on. So it could have been that as well. I wasn't worried about the technology on video too much, but for some reason, no reason that I can figure out, it just didn't work and you'd have to call back and that never happened on the phone. Yeah. And I think that's a good point because I think we're fairly tech literate. And so I think we have to think about those patients who have challenges with the technology, not just navigating the technology because they're not familiar. It's not even having access to a device. Right. I think we make an assumption that everyone has a cell phone. Everyone has a device. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. And so I think we have to think about that accessibility piece. And, you know, not just that for for some people, English isn't their first language or they might not be able to read that email that an administrator has sent them with the instructions for how to connect. Right. So I think you're right. You know, I think there's advantages to the virtual format when we're on video. I think there's there's also a lot of problems with that. And if people don't have the knowledge, the access to the technology and potentially the support. Because Anat spoke to this, for some people, they need the support of a caregiver to help them even access the technology. So there's so many factors that have to align for that video virtual visit to occur and to occur successfully. I worry about there being even more difficult for people without means to have Mm. access Mm -hmm. to healthcare. The more virtual it becomes. Like, I I think about how much money it costs just to have good internet access and a device and a good computer. And 
we learned that in education too, that, you know, many children had access, but some children didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think about Annette's point about, you know, we can't shy away from technology, Mm. right? It is our future. That's true. And so maybe more taking a lens, access to internet, access to phones, like those are basic human rights now, Mm. right? Yes. And so looking at it more from a lens of accessibility for all as opposed Mm -hmm. to shying away because we're worried about like the potential inequities Mm -hmm. that may occur because some people have access and some people don't. Yeah, no, such a good point. That's a very good point. The other thing that we had talked about as well and that Annette touched on was this idea of the relational and the the human aspects of care And virtual care for us in our setting, very much linked to the pandemic. And so in its infancy and virtual care is only going to expand and explode from here. And when we think about the goal of this podcast, thinking about empathic communication skills and compassionate care, we really have to think carefully about physicians not becoming technicians. Yes. Right? She talked about we don't want a robocall telling us we got cancer. And she's absolutely right. We are going to have lots of technology, but when we add the nuance of good communication, I think we'll be able to overcome that. And I think, I mean, she loved the Jetsons and she is the Jetsons. And I, I always think about Star Trek and how it does it. I mean, in Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry created a world that doctors just had to use this little device that told them exactly what was wrong with a body. And so really what you're left with as a doctor at that point when everybody knows everything is how you help them navigate that illness, how you help them talk about it, how you help them deal with it. All the things that, you know, medicine didn't really focus on, but that the three of us care so much about and feel that we can't lose this. This is going to be what's going to make technology viable and useful in the future. We're going to have to get better at communicating as technology progresses. And I think that's exciting. And I think it can be done. I was really glad she brought that up. I mean, it's coming, right? AI being able to provide someone with a diagnosis based on multiple data points and multiple data endpoints, that's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. I think it's a good question to ask. So what is the role of a physician? What's the role of a healthcare provider in that setting? And it's like you said, Dory, it's the connection and it's the helping navigate that diagnosis and the change in their lives. The relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think this was a fantastic conversation with Anat. I feel like I learned so much from her and you know, great points from Dory and Irene about you know how technology is improving and enhancing our lives. But we also have to think about how technology might take some things away. And we have to be really kind of clear and deliberate about making sure that we keep those human connections. I agree with you, Giovanna. I'm so glad that Anat joined us today and she brought out all those wonderful points. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. 
When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Yin. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner and Sarah May. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Golda Fine Award through the Tammy Latner Centre for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.